Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Thursday, June the 16th, 2022. It is currently 10, 11 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live. Should I say I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central Studios? Should I say that? Well, reality, I'm coming to you live two stories above a street right here in Abilene, Texas. I'm coming to you from the two from the second story bedroom of my home here in Abilene, Texas. But it serves. This room serves as the Theology Central Studios. If you if you saw the room right now, you would be like, "That's not a studio. It looks like a well, it looks like a classroom." And you're right, it because this was the homeroom. This was the homeschool classroom for this past school year. But next year, it will not be a homeroom classroom. So now, what we need to do is, I need to hire someone to come in here, take all of this down, and make it look like a studio. That's what I need. I need, I need because I, I would not be any good at that. But that, that's what I need. But it serves as a studio in this sense. This is where the microphone is, this is where the laptop is. And because of technology, even though I'm here in Abilene, Texas, and I know what you're saying, Abilene, what, where, what, where? Yes, in a sense, in the middle of nowhere, Texas, in, 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 in the middle of West Texas, uh, because of technology, I can be here in the second story bedroom and press a button and go live and talk to people all around the world, and those people can contact me via email 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They can even contact me via email when I'm already on the air in the middle of a live broadcast, which is what just occurred a few minutes ago. I was live on the air talking about some breaking news. I'm not going to go back into that story, but while I was on the air with breaking news, I received an email And it says, if you are able, I would love for you to do an episode on this ultra thought-provoking thread on, I'm not going to name the subject. If you're listening to me on Spreaker, you already know the subject. If you're listening to me on Sermons 2.0 or the Church One app, you have no idea what the subject is. So I can add a little mystery. But while I was on the air, I received an email right here to the Theology Central Studios and well, I want to take this opportunity. I know it's it's already after 10 p.m., so a lot of people will not hear this, but I wanted to just try to start addressing this right now. So here's what we're going to do. At first, I did not uh, call this part one. I just I left the part one out, but then I realized there's just no way I can address all of this in one episode. So we're just going to kind of introduce the topic, raise some questions, hopefully that will generate a lot of conversation because I believe this is a subject that requires a lot of different perspectives. I think for so for so long, I think this subject has been addressed more in the form of a monologue where one person says, this is what you're to think, this is what you're to do, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do, and and that's how you are to approach it. It's been very much like you listen to me. You listen to whoever the spiritual leader is, and that's how you're supposed to think about it. And I think at no point did anyone ever say, time out, time out, time out, time out. Let's talk about this. 
Let's discuss this. And I know it's dangerous. Listen, I'm very aware that it's dangerous sometimes. Um, and I want, I, okay, I hope this makes sense. I'm going to say it's dangerous, but I hope you understand why I'm saying it's dangerous. It's dangerous sometimes when you take the preaching of God's word, right? You take the proclamation of God's word of doctrine and theology, which is typically done in a, in a very much a monologue way, right? You, I speak, you listen. I'm going to lecture. I'm going to preach. I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach God's word. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. In many cases, that is just done in a very straight preaching way. And, I, and I'm, there is nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes there needs to be a dialogue. Now, the danger with dialogue is it means to say, so so you're telling me that they can just disagree or go along with whatever they want? No. What I'm saying is sometimes those who are delivering the, the sermons, those who are delivering the monologue, do need to hear the perspective of those in the pew because maybe we can get a better understanding of what's going on. Now, sometimes the people in the pew... They won't speak up. Now, sometimes they try to speak up and they're not listened to. But a lot of times, I, I know that there's a lot of situations where I try to ask people things and you just get no response. And you're like, no, I need to understand why, 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 why? And, and they don't want to say. Because I think in some cases, if they were honest, it makes them look really, 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 really bad. So they don't want to say. But I think in some cases, the church needs some good dialogue where we can hear the different perspectives, and this one very much so, because I think this subject has been addressed in a monologue fashion from the male perspective, not allowing the female perspective to be heard. Now, I'm not saying that means you should ordain a female pastor and she should preach, but the female perspective needs to be understood because I think there's, there's a disconnect here. I think the female, and I'm grabbing a pencil because once I start thinking, I have to have a pencil in my hand. I think the female perspective on this subject is radically different than the male perspective. I really believe that. I really believe that. And I, and I think the male perspective sometimes is oblivious to the female perspective. But I think in some cases, the female perspective maybe oblivious to the male perspective. So I see we don't we need no we don't need monologue here. We need dialogue. And 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 I I, I really think that. I really I know that I know again I know there's danger because you don't want a dialogue to be like, well, here's here's what I think, so therefore it should be my way. No, dialogue is just like you're trying to get the perspective. God's word is still God's word. What God's word says is true. You don't change God's word because of dialogue. But dialogue allows you to understand the perspective of the people who are hearing God's word. Because you may be addressing God's word in one way, but there's people there, they're not hearing it that way. They're not seeing it that way. There's a disconnect. So the dialogue allows you to go, okay, I can't change God's word, but let me explain it to address your concerns or to or to maybe I need to uh, pr present God's word in a way that is more balanced because maybe the balance is not coming through. In other words, the dialogue can at least have you check the way you are presenting. I know you're like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Just stay with me, right? Here is the email I received, all right? Because I think this is important. Here we go. If you are able, 
I would love for you to do an episode on this ultra thought provoking thread on purity culture. Oh, wow. Purity culture. Now, whenever we start talking about purity culture, I think this requires dialogue because I think the female perspective may be radically different than the male perspective. And a lot of women have spoken up strongly about their feelings about purity culture. There's even now discussion about purity culture trauma, those who were traumatized in purity within purity culture. And a lot of them are women, but there are a lot of men who describes their trauma with purity culture. Now, the thread, if you click on it, if you click on the link, takes me to a Twitter thread, and it begins this way. Purity culture has done more damage to women in the church than feminism. Now, that is a provocative take. That's one of those hot takes. It's coming in with fire. And immediately when people hear that, they're going to react absolutely. You know, feminism is the greatest evil to ever come upon the church. It's destroying lives. It's, 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 we must fight it. Now, I, I think, now before we even go in here and address purity culture or feminism, I think the thread, because the, I know the reaction this kind of thread will get, this kind of discussion will get, I will argue the church has has a long history of always looking outside the window at all of the bad things. Feminism, critical race theory, woke ideology, progressives, liberals, Democrats. You, you just name, it's always good at looking. Look at them, look at them. The LGBTQ, and it's always, those are the greatest threats to the church. Those are the great, we always point to things outside the church as being the greatest threat to those inside the church. And I think sometimes we do that because it just allows us to feel more morally superior. But I think that in many cases, what happens inside the church is the greatest threat to the church. I think the greatest threat to the church, the thing that does the greatest damage, usually is that which is going on within the church, not that which is coming going on without the church. Everyone thinks. Now, I'm not saying that that means we just ignore the world and that the world never has a has creates a problem, but it's always that which is happening inside the church. So, here's purity culture. Here's feminism. Well, the church is clearly going to yell and scream at feminism, and it's never going to look at purity culture because they would argue purity culture is a biblical concept because the Bible calls us to be pure. So clearly this can't be a problem. It's got to be those bad feminists. Clearly critical race theory has to be the problem. It can't be all the issues inside the church, right? So it's always, the church is always good at pointing the finger out Instead of looking at the mirror, we want to look out the window before we want to look in the mirror. We want to spend time at the window. We don't want to spend any time in the mirror because the mirror shows us our own faults. So a lot of times we cover up our faults by pointing out everyone else's. I I think, and you know what? I, I don't think that's a church problem. I think that's a human nature problem right? Human nature always wants to exalt self. And how do you exalt self? By pointing out everyone else's faults. The more you condemn others, the more you point out everyone else's faults, you make yourself feel better. You make yourself morally superior. I think this is the the, the flaw of human. Remember, the, the, the definition of sin, sin is the exaltation of the I, 
that the sin is the exaltation of self, of the I, of you, of me. We exalt ourselves. It's about us, self-promotion, self-glorification, self-satisfaction, self-everything, self-promotion. It, that's what sin ultimately is. It's about, it's the, the I and the, and the word sin. It's about that. It's about us. It's about selfishness. So when this says purity culture has done more damage to women in the church than feminism, the, the normal reaction from Christians or the church is going to be like, absolutely not. Feminism is the greatest threat. Feminism. I, I don't. I, I've had arguments with people that about critical race theory. I'm like, critical race theory has become the new boogeyman for Christians. It's out to get us. It's out to destroy us. Well, we're worried about critical race theory. I don't know. Women are being raped. Children are being molested. Churches are covering it up. We got massive scandals going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. And everything. No, no, no. Critical race theory is the thing that we need to worry about. And you're like, well, you were worrying about critical race theory. You were covering up sexual abuser, abusers and the largest Protestant denomination. Really? I mean, come on. I, I, I know. I know. I'm going to get pushback on that. But I think it's just what we do. It's what we do. So I want to go through this thread because this the, the person who wrote this is a female. And she ha- she obviously experienced purity culture. And let's just say her experience seems to be absolutely horrifying. And I want to get to it, but we can't, it does us, it's of no value to address purity culture, right? Until we have some kind of definition of what we're talking about, right? Because if you get five people together and say, what is purity culture? There's no point in addressing it until you can get everyone to agree on a definition, right? Some people are going to define purity culture more by the things associated with it than the actual definition of it. They're like, oh, purity rings or purity pledges or love, uh, true love waits campaign. Or jo- I think Josh McDowell wrote the book, True Love Waits or Joshua Harris and I Kiss Dating Good. Like they, they, they're going to point to all of these things associated with it. But when you, when you boil down purity culture to a simple definition, we have to have a definition. Because once we can't critique something until we've defined defined it. Because if we don't have a definition, then all the critiques can just be straw man. You can build a straw man and then say, that's purity culture. Now watch me burn it to the ground. But when you hear them talk, you're like, is that purity culture? Are you burning down I Kiss Dating Goodbye? Because I don't know if you remember this. There were plenty in the church who believed in purity who didn't agree with Kiss Dating Goodbye. I know you're going to be shocked by this. There were many who looked at many things the church was doing, quote unquote, in the name of purity culture, who believed in purity, who believed in a culture of purity, who would have rejected many of those ideas. So are you going after the the things associated with it? Are you going after the actual definition of it? Because this person describes in this thread a lot of things that I'm like, well, that's purity culture? That that was purity culture? I, I don't know if that was purity culture. I think you were involved in some weirdness. I think is what I think. I don't know what was going on in your life, but you, that was, I think that was, I don't know what that was. So we've got to define it. So I started looking around and I at least found this. I don't, I'm not saying, I'm not going to say, uh, if this is even a workable definition, we could find many, but I just want you to see how this works, all right? Purity culture is the term 
often used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity. Now, how could you be opposed to that? Here's an evangelical movement that is trying to promote a biblical view of purity. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but throughout church history, someone has a biblical view. Here's a biblical view. They believe this is a biblical concept. It is true. But in many cases, in the promotion of that view, defending of that view, and speaking of that view, there are times where those who are committed to a view end up going to an unbiblical extreme where they ultimately corrupt the view, pollute the view, and actually create a fraudulent idea that they were trying to defend and promote. You can see this in all kinds of circles where, let me, let me say this. You can have, I'll just forget purity culture. You have legalism and you have liberalism. Sometimes those who reject liberalism for what they think is biblical Christianity end up in some extreme form of legalism. They're like, no, we reject liberalism and we want biblical Christianity. And you look over and you're like, I think you left biblical Christianity. You're now over here in a weird world of some crazy legalism that to me corrupts the gospel itself and creates a false gospel. All right. But then there are those who reject that crazy legalism. Like we need to get back to the biblical gospel. And then they end up in some weird, weird world of liberalism. It happens all the time where what you Try to you you try to fight for the truth, but you end up going to a wrong extreme. Christians, there it's always throughout two thousand years of church history, find ourselves going to extremes because once again, it's a part of our sinful nature. It's a part of our sinful nature. So, if you define purity culture as simply the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of purity, you can't condemn that purity culture unless you're going to condemn the biblical view of purity. Now, the question is, you can have the biblical view of purity, but in so trying to promote it, you go to some extreme that should be condemned. There you don't condemn purity culture. You condemn the abuses of purity culture. You don't condemn the grace of God. You condemn those who abuse the grace of God. You don't condemn the the law of God, you condemn those who would abuse or misuse the law of God. Now, the passage of scripture that they say kind of promotes the biblical view of purity is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. I just, I'm going to use the translation that I just have right here in my hands. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 through 8. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all those offenses as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives us his Holy Spirit. So let me read this again. It is God's will, it's your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, 
that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. That seems pretty clear. We have to, we have to pursue purity. We have to pursue a sanctified that we do not give ourselves into sinful lust. We do not give ourselves over to sexual immorality. That, that's what the Bible calls us to do. Now, remember, that is law, and we know that ultimately it condemns us because we will find ourselves falling short of this over and over and over. That doesn't excuse it, but we just, uh, there's lust. We're going to lust. We're, we just have to acknowledge this. Now, this is what they say. So purity culture is, the, is a term for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote biblical view of purity. Now, here's the thing. There's not, you can't see there's anything wrong with trying to promote a biblical view of purity based on 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. But this is what happens. So that is kind of purity culture. Can we call that pure purity culture? But when pure purity culture looks at it and goes, okay, how do we accomplish this? Then they start coming up with ideas. How are we going to accomplish this form of biblical purity? What are we going to do? So then we have to start coming up with methods and techniques and ministries and programs and conferences. And we start coming up with all of these things that the Bible may never even give us any of these ideas. We start coming up with them. How can we do this? So in purity culture, they started discouraging things like dating, promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols such as purity rings, and events such as purity balls. Now, these are all supposed techniques, methods, and ideas to maintain that biblical purity. Now, the key is all of these techniques and all of these ideas, are they biblical ideas? Are they biblical concepts that actually help or do they actually corrupt and hinder a biblical view of purity? And do they possibly amount to a fleshly attempt to fulfill biblical morality? Those are questions we would have to ask. Purity pledges are vows taken by teenagers and young adults to abstain from sex before marriage. A prime example is the original pledge from True Love Waits, which read, Believing that True Love Waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, those I date, and my future mate to be sexually pure until the day I enter marriage. Purity rings are sometimes worn as an outward symbol by those who have made a purity pledge. The rings were popularized by the Christian ministry, the Silver Ring Thing, which promoted abstinence primarily through music events. A decades ago, the rings were worn by several young actors and pop stars, including Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Celine Gomez, and the Jonas Brothers. And well, all of that crashed and burned. Okay, all right. Okay, Miley Cyrus ended up, you know, swinging around on a wrecking ball without any clothes on. Uh, I think Selena Gomez was on an album cover without any clothes, if I remember correctly. Um, so all of, and then, yeah, it, it all crashed and burned, all right? But it became popular, all right? Purity balls or father-daughter purity balls are formal dance events attended by fathers and their daughters that promote virginity until marriage for teenage girls. At the balls, the fathers would often sign a pledge that they would be the example of purity and model integrity for their daughters. The dances were originally conceived in 1998 by the California couple Randy and Lisa Wilson as a way of celebrating God's design and life's little growth spurts. 
All right. Now, let's just stop right here. All of these concepts and all of these ideas moved forward. And in the midst of all of this, I think a couple of things started happening. All right. A couple of things. One. It started to all the idea almost started to be promoted and, and mainly towards the females and now maybe for the men, but, but really, I think there a lot of pressure started to be putting on females. I'm just going to go through a couple of things here. I think a lot of, well, let's just do it this first before we even get to that. I think in some ways, Christianity became, and I, I, I let, let me, let me offer context here. I became a Christian in the late, uh, in the late, kind of well, the late 1980s, I think it would be classified as the late 1980s. So I was right there at the beginning of the purity culture movement, and clearly saw it explode in the 1990s. Now, when I became a Christian in the late 1980s, it felt like. Now, I'm not saying this is it. Well, no, this was true in my Southern Baptist church. Okay, wasn't true in my Lutheran church. Uh, but it was true in the Southern Baptist Church, that my Christianity was really going to be defined by the following. Don't have sex. Whatever you do, if you have sex, it's like the end, I mean, like three seconds away from blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because you're taking your body, which is the temple of God, and you're committing some horrible, horrible, sinful act. And it's basically, I mean, I wouldn't say they would call it blasphemy, but they came pretty, pretty close to basically like, you know, that's the end of the end of the end of the end. You've got, you've got to avoid that. Like your Christianity is nothing more than avoiding sex. It, it became the, the focus became on, not on Christ and him crucified. The focus became on me not committing this sin. So sin, sexual sin became the sin. It was almost exalted above all other sins. The greatest sin one could commit would be sexual sin. All right. And it was very much like sex. And, and the church has always had this mindset, if you think about it, like, look, you can gossip. Okay. You can slander. Okay. You may not love your wife as Christ loved the church. Okay. A wife may not submit herself to the husband as unto the Lord. There may be backbiting. There may be bitterness. There may be unforgiveness. There may be church splits. There may, there may be pride. There may be gluttony. There may be slothfulness. There, you may not uh, do your work as, as unto the Lord. You could, there could be a million sins, and those are kind of the socially acceptable sins. You're not going to really see anyone church disciplined about it. It's no big deal. But, oh, if someone commits a sexual sin, it's like, Call in the cops, call in everybody, bring the nails, the hammer. They're, we're going to have a crucifixion because it's the sin. So in my mind, that was the sin, right? So that creates, you, you can see what whatever you think that creates. So so sexual sin kind of get got made the number one sin. Then number two, it felt like that the female was put in somewhat of a different perspective uh, a different category than the guy. The female, it was almost looked like you want to protect your virginity. Like it's almost, it was almost like guys are not going to always pull this off, but girls, you can, and you need to, because the only thing you really have to offer in marriage is your virginity. And if you lose that virginity, it was almost, you're damaged. You, you can never give that to your husband on your wedding night. It was almost like, Hey, the guys are not going to be able to pull this off, but girls, you can. 
So the girl, it's almost like the pressure became, girls, you must protect your virginity because it's the only gift you can offer your husband when you get married is your virginity. It, it was very much, I'm not saying it's an accurate perception, but the perception was the girls have to protect it because that's all they can give to their husband on the wedding night, right? So sexual sin became number one. The, I think there was a lot of pressure on the girls in, in this movement. You can tell me whether you agree or not. Number three, it seemed like that in many cases, the responsibility to keep the guys from sinning was placed upon the females. So, hey, girls, look, here's the deal. The reality is guys are out of control. All right, they're three seconds away from basically being animals, okay? They're out of control. There's, you don't even understand the pressure guys are on. You don't even understand. They, their situation is far different than yours. You got to protect them. So then it became that the girls, you can't wear this. You can't wear makeup. You can't do your hair this way. You can't dress this way. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. And it really became the pressure became on the girls. Now, I'm not saying there weren't pressure on the guys. The pressure on the guys was the greatest sin you can commit is sexual sin. So there was a lot of pressure on the guys. I'm not saying there wasn't, but it just seemed like, hey, guys, sexual sin is the greatest sin. There was a lot of other sins you could commit as a teenager and you're okay. Just don't have sex for crying out loud. Lie, gossip, slander, be hateful. Just don't. Look, you don't have time to worry about any other sin. You got to worry about sexual sin. It really, that kind of the way it was. And then number two, the girls are like, hey, 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 you can't do it because you have nothing. You, you, you off, you lose your virginity, you're damaged goods. I mean, like, and who wants damaged goods? I mean, like, it's like the girl was like, if you lose your virginity, you're finished. You, you're nothing. And at least that's, again, that was the perception. And then number three, it was like, girls, you got to protect the guys. Now, I'm not saying that's biblical purity culture. What I'm saying is biblical purity culture is 1 Thessalonians 4 telling us to abstain from this. We have to keep ourselves pure, but then how to articulate that, how to teach that, how to come up with strategies and to do this, then people get involved in those strategies. And when we touch those strategies, we end up corrupting it. Basically, it's nothing different than reading about the Pharisees. Hey, hey, here's God's law. Now look, 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 look. We, we got to keep you from breaking the law. So we're going to add a lot of, here's this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule. They added rules to try to keep you holy. Well, I think in many cases, they try to come up with every strategy, every way, every analogy or illustration to try to convince the kids that they can't do so. So they, they, we elevate sexual sin to scare everyone to death, right? Two, we basically tell the girls, because, hey, you know, we really can't trust these guys to do anything. Hey, girls, you don't want to lose, lose your virginity because you'll be damaged goods. You have nothing to offer. And, and three, hey, girls, you've got to do everything you can to protect the guys. Whether it was intended or whether it was unintended, whether it really wasn't even trying to be the focus, it became the focus because it became an imbalanced way of trying to approach it. It wasn't that purity was bad. It was the way we tried to bring it about was bad. 
And here's the thing, when you're kind of brought up into that culture, well, then those of the young people who are brought up into that culture who become preachers, you then, you you begin to, you begin to promote it. You begin to express those ideas because that the Christian world was dominated by, it was everywhere, Christian radio, Christian sermons, Christian singers, Christian music, the concepts were, ever, there were conferences, and it's like, well, we've got to be on board on this because who who would say that we're not for purity? So in some cases, we end up with an unbalanced view, but here's the thing. Were we attempting purity through fleshly means, fleshly ideology, and fleshly methods? And can fleshly methods ever produce spiritual change? It became more of a legalistic approach than a gospel approach. Now, I know the gospel approach makes people nervous because the gospel approach is, look, in you're never going to be, look, all the purity we pursue, we're never going to be truly pure, either in our thoughts, words, or action. We're going to fall short. So we have to find our purity first and foremost in, our, in, the, in the imputed righteousness of Christ. But I think this is where things started getting bizarre. Things started getting a little weird. So now we're at 32 minutes. I'm not going to go any further tonight. Because we're going we're gonna to talk about where the, 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 the purity culture started. And I'm borrowing from a, a, a frequently asked questions about purity culture article that I came across. I'm borrowing a little bit from that. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm adding my own. A lot, mo, a lot of, so it's, it's a little mixture of a, a lot of different content. But I, I would ask you this. Do you believe purity culture? Now, how do we define purity culture? Let me say this. Can we say that the corrupted understanding of biblical, cure, uh, biblical purity, can we say this? The, the corrupted ideas to accomplish pur- purity culture do you feel that has done more damage to women in the church than feminism? Do you think the, now, because I don't want to see biblical purity culture because biblical purity culture is 1 Thessalonians 4. That's biblical. So do you think the corrupted concepts of purity culture, the, the corrupted ideas of purity culture, do you think that has done more damage to women than feminism? And I think, some, I, I think making sexual sin basically the worst sin ever, telling women that basically your damaged goods if you lose your virginity was not helpful, and placing the responsibility to keep men pure on the women, I think these are major issues that had profound negative impact on everyone. Because not ever look, there was going to be... I, I, people can say whatever they want. They can say whatever they want. The reality is Christians still have a sinful nature. And, oh, I I know this is shocking. Christians still have, I don't know, physical desires that are there, that are natural desires. And when you take 16, 15, 17-year-olds trying to live out their Christian life, plus dealing with these desires, they're not, it's not always going to be pure. There's going to be problems. And so the issue is if you create a situation where if you do this, you're finished, I I think it can be spiritually damaging. And if you give these women some of these ideas, wouldn't that be absolutely devastating to their whole understanding of everything, maybe even more so than feminism? And is it possible 
that for many women, purity culture led them to feminism? Is it possible that purity culture gave rise, not biblical purity culture, but this kind of corrupted idea, are you, is it possible that they gave, gave rise or gave energy to feminism? That purity culture grew in strength. Now, feminism already existed prior to the rise of purity culture. Obviously, feminism can be dated back to the 60s and 70s, clearly, okay? But I'm saying, do you think that, that, let me state it this way. Do you think purity culture led many professing Christians to feminism? Let me state it that way. I can't say it gave gave rise to it or gave strength to it because I don't know if that's historically accurate but I think it may have led many to it. And the emailer makes that same point and some points they make. Now, we're going to work through this thread uh, and and probably we'll try to do this tomorrow, but I at least want to bring these issues up. And I'll end with this. Because whatever we do on this subject, wherever whatever we do, we have to, we have to not forget this. Whatever discussions we have on this subject, we cannot forget this. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, Because the Lord is an avenger of all those offenses, as we also previously told and warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. That's scripture. We've got to do something with that. You can't reject that. Now, what people did with that that became known as purity culture, that may need to be rejected. There you go. I don't know if you can hear my stomach growling again, but there you go. All right. There we go. I can turn my stomach growling into a very power, I think a very important illustration about this entire subject, but we will, we will not go there right now. All right. We'll use it next time. All right. I'm going to, I got to save all of this because, uh, this is some important stuff. And uh, yeah, th- there's uh, some important conversations here that we got to save. That we, I, I got to save all of these so we can have serious conversations about them later. All right, but I'll stop there. Email me your thoughts about this entire subject. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right, thanks for listening. We'll pick this up tomorrow. God bless. <laughs>